We tend to think of women in the colonial era as prim and proper with formal gowns and refined manners. But in some regions of the country, that era may have been much wilder than we think. I call them my feisty women. They will come up with ideas of how to get rid of their husbands. There's murder plots. I know one lady packed lunch for the husband and crushed some glass into it, hoping that he would, you know, die along the way. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, sex, lies, and murder in the Spanish-Texas borderlands. And later... Latin American immigrants forging a sense of belonging in Williamsburg, Virginia. But first, Liz Elizondo studies colonial Spanish Texas from 1700 to 1820, and she says love affairs in that region didn't just occasionally happen, they were the norm. Liz is a history professor at Virginia Military Institute and the author of the forthcoming book, Deviance and Drama, Illicit sexuality in the Spanish-Texas borderlands. Liz, I don't really think of promiscuity during the colonial era, but that's what you found. Exactly, exactly. And I think we have this misconception of um, the colonial period. We have this misconception of Latin America in general, that it's highly patriarchal, that the church is very much involved and it's pushing for marriages and sort of this perfect colonial society. When in fact, there is a lot of promiscuity going on. And in some places like Spanish Texas, it is happening and it's known and it's allowed and there's very little repercussions for it. You truly found a lot of illicit affairs or just more than you might have expected. <laughs> so I have this great quote um, that actually started this entire project. I found it in the archive in Texas when I was starting you know, to poke around and, and see what was there. And it's from the summer of 1794. And it's this commandant at the Presidio in East Texas who is asked to settle this dispute between two Spanish farmers and separate um, a 22-year-old soldier that is, quote, suspected of having an illicit relationship with a married woman from the town. And the commandant responds that, you know, it's it's sort of out of his hands. And, and he says, quote, I could not exile him for reason nor justice, because if I did so, every time a complaint came in, there would be no people in this town. So that comment is what um, took me in this direction because I thought, well, what, what do you mean there would be no people in the town? So who were the men? Were a lot of them soldiers? A lot of them were soldiers. Um, and I also have sort of a wide range of offenders. So we have soldiers, we have people that are just farmers, and it goes all the way up to missionaries the governors. Um, and in East Texas, we're talking about not just women on the Texas side, they are actually crossing the border to the French side, to the French presidios and intermingling and partying and, you know, having affairs with French women and bringing them across the border. So it's sort of this multifaceted world that seems to have been <laughs> quite a lot of fun. Mostly single women or married? It's a combination of both, but I do, I was surprised to find that there's quite a few married women that are openly having affairs and sort of defying the church, defying their husbands and saying, this is what I want, you know, um, it's my life. So challenging that patriarchal order that we tend to think is controlling the women when in fact they had more freedoms. How harsh was the punishment after one of these trials? And did it change over time? I mean, you're talking more than 100 years. So the, the punishment remains the same. So on paper, the, the punishment would have been exile from the area, um, going to prison, being sent to, to a larger prison somewhere else, because in the borderlands, you, we didn't really have prisons at that time. So they're sent to the larger cities. But um, most often when people are tried, they are warned and told to separate. And that is kind of the, the typical outcome. And if they are multiple offenders, then that's where you get into 
um, pushing more for exile and moving those people to a different location so they become somebody else's problem. You also found that the women were surprisingly strong in terms of, this is what I want to do, leave me alone, I've decided I want to be with this other person, and less sort of bound by the government and the religion and such. Yes, yes. Um, I call them my feisty women. They are feisty and they'll talk back. Um, They will, you know, come up with ideas of how to get rid of their husbands. There's murder plots. I know one lady packed lunch for the husband and crushed some glass into it, hoping that he would, you know, die along the way. So there is some room for maneuvering freedoms. And as one lady calls it, her own free will. She is going to decide what she wants and she will go back to her husband when she wants to go back with him, not when he decides that that should be the case. You know, in the course of your research, you came across two actual love letters in two different cases that must have been striking for you. Where'd you find them? It was absolutely striking. So I actually found them at the archive in Mexico City, the National Archive, when I was poking around, um, sort of researching anything they had on Texas. I was looking at just a typical court case, and it's, it's a huge case against an outgoing governor. So the outgoing governor of Texas, the 14th governor of Texas, is removed from his post because he, he refused to live in East Texas. Um, he, he felt that he needed to be in San Antonio. And in, in that period, the French encroach on Spanish territory. So the governor is absolutely blamed for what happens. And his name is Manuel de Sandoval. So he is spending his time in San Antonio because he's having this love affair with a married woman that is one of his soldier's wives. So um, the case is huge. And I was reading through sort of this mundane documentation about why he's tried and why he's being removed. And then I find two love letters that are preserved as evidence. So Rita, Rita's letter to Manuel is about um, what's going to happen post their separation because Manuel is sent to prison and she was left behind when he went to prison pregnant. And feels very overwhelmed with the situation. So this is how she starts. Quote, My beloved owner and master, I have received your letter from the hands of the missionary, and it gave me so much joy. I give you the good news that God has taken me out of my dangerous pregnancy, and I have given birth to a beautiful boy that I tell you is the spitting image of you. And then she goes on to explain her predicament. Um, that she feels alone, that she has left the mission to give birth to the child, and most importantly, that she has decided to go back and live with her husband. So um, she tells him, quote, "Um, my husband wants to get back with me, but with the request that I do not bring the baby because he will not receive him. I am determined to reunite with my husband, which I have already let the missionary know. End quote. So that gives us a, a little glimpse of sort of that free will, um, that agency that women had um, to say, at this point, it is my choice, right? I'm going back with my husband. And then she goes on to explain, which I think is the most powerful part of the letter, um, how difficult this has been for her. Um, it's sort of a palpable angst that she's going to be leaving this baby behind. Um, She says, quote, you can believe me with all of the pain of my being that I will leave this presidio getting away from your sight and separating myself from your life portrait that is your son. And I wholeheartedly hate myself for doing so, but I do not see another remedy. I beg you not to forget me. I am yours with all of my heart until I die. So that's how she closes her letter. Um, very romantic, very emotional, um, but I think it really reveals her circumstances and the fact that now she finds herself alone and with a child and she needs to do what she thinks is best for her situation. 
that gives me chills on so many levels, right? I know. It is right? such it is such a modern expression of, you know, the complex human dilemma, right? Exactly. And that's what's so surprising, right? Because we often think of the colonial period as being so far removed. But, you know, the dramas that they're involved in is something that a lot of people, modern day people can relate to. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And the, the second letter that was also part of the evidence here was written by this unknown woman, self-penned, um, very childlike scripture. Um, and she starts off, and hers is very, very short. She starts off by saying, My beloved and all of my heart and everything I love, Fray Francisco de Frias, I do not know how to tell you how sad and crazy I am. Since you left, I have not lifted my head, just thinking that all of my joy and comfort and all of our walks and entertainment is gone. I have not gone to the mission once because I do not want to see how sad and empty without your light. I received the three letters that you sent me, and I was so delighted that I sucked them, but I wish I could blank the original one. I do not say more because it has been 11 days since I saw the sun. I am almost blind. Please pray for me. The only reason I get up is to write to you. Send the letters you write to me with Mariquita. Goodbye, all of my comfort. See you later. Hasta la vista. So this one is, um, you know, she does include sexual innuendos in her letter, um, which is also quite rare. Um, this is the only one I've seen with this type of language. But I think the fact that she wrote her own letter gave her more freedom to, to say exactly what she felt. Right. And again, how simple and pure and filled with a, a kind of yearning that everyone has experienced. Exactly. Yeah. It's so sad to think because the separations happen um, very quickly. It's almost very unexpected for them. And they had been so used to living in the open, right? These relationships are happening in the open. These two married women are having affairs with, you know, powerful men in the community and they're not hiding it from anybody. So I think the separation came as a shock for them and they're trying to digest what has happened and they do so in these letters, which, you know, were preserved not for their sentimental value, but as evidence against the governor and we're lucky to have them. How did it feel to you when you first read these intimate love letters? Maybe the most intimate passages you'd ever read that weren't your own writing, right? Absolutely. Um, I felt almost as if I was reading something I wasn't supposed to be reading, <laughs> to be honest. You know, I, I knew they were letters because of the first sentence, and I just sucked the air out of that archive um, because I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But the more I got into them, the more I felt like I shouldn't have access to these personal commentaries. And it felt almost like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it a disservice to, to try to publish this. So I've actually been working on this article since 2014, because I'm, I'm trying to find a way to tell the story um, with still being respectful of, of their privacy. Um, so they've been with me for a while. And I feel very attached, especially to, to Rita's story, the, the first letter, because when I read it, I didn't have children. And, and at this point, I've had a child and it's a son. And I, I just feel all of her emotions just thinking about that choice that she was forced to make when the baby was, he was born in December. So he was less than a month old when she has to decide, you know, she she's going back to her husband and, you know. We don't know what happens to the baby in the end. Do you think she could have made another choice or really not really? I think it would have been difficult um, for survival. And I feel like she was very used to being protected by a male figure in her life. Because prior to this affair, she was living married life with a husband. She had the affair. And while um, the governor was around, she felt empowered to to stay with him and tell her husband that 
She doesn't want to go back to married life. But the moment she finds herself alone without that protection, she she sort of runs back to her husband and and takes him up on that proposition that they will reunite as husband and wife. But it, that is not to say it wouldn't have been possible because there is quite a few single mothers in the region. In a way, you know, it's, it's her personal choice to have done this, but it would have been a possibility to raise a child on her own, but she chooses not to. Um, I think part of that may have been this, she references twice that he is the spitting image of him, right? So maybe it has something to do with the child reminds her so much of this loss that she can't handle, um, sort of raising him and being with him because she knows that they're never going to go back together as a couple. Liz Elizondo is a history professor at Virginia Military Institute and the author of the forthcoming book, Deviance and Drama, Illicit Sexuality in the Spanish-Texas Borderlands. Coming up next, creating a sense of belonging in a faraway land. Latin American immigrants in America are faced with institutional barriers almost every day, from navigating healthcare to the education system. Jennifer Bickham Mendez is a sociology professor at William & Mary and the co-editor of the forthcoming book, Latinx Belonging, Community and Resilience in the United States. She says Latin American immigrants in Williamsburg, Virginia, have created a sense of belonging by developing support networks and pooling their resources to overcome the barriers. Jennifer, you're working on a new book that draws on your long experience with Mexican and Central American immigrants. Tell me about that. What has been your experience with them? I was drawn into this almost 20 years ago now when I got a call in my office at William & Mary on a landline telephone inviting me <laughs> to a meeting at the public library. And the meeting was about, you know, quote unquote, Hispanics in Williamsburg. And my response, having recently moved to this part of the country from California, was there are Latino people in Williamsburg. And that was 2003. And I walked into the library and the library auditorium was full of people who worked for every kind of social service agency you could kind of imagine from early childhood organizations to the police, to the hospital. And the topic was this new group of people. And it struck me as a sociologist as being so interesting because people in that room were so surprised. And they knew enough to know that they didn't know a lot about this group of people and that they needed to figure this out. And that just kind of set me on a path of learning about what at that time was sort of a more hidden group of people. And now to this point, kind of having a broader view and understanding about the diversity of different kinds of people that fit under this broad label of what the census calls Hispanic or Latino and what today we refer to in many circles as Latinx. What do you think had brought the earliest immigrants to Williamsburg, this population in 2003? Beginning in the 2000s, I learned that this was part of a larger story of um, immigration trends to this part of the United States. And for the case of Williamsburg, it was really a uh, economic migration at that time. Were they working for Colonial Williamsburg? No, no. They were working in booming um, construction industry and service industry because Williamsburg, like many um, areas in the U.S. Southeast, right. was really growing at that time. And there was a huge demand for workers in, this, um, in these kinds of industries. Did local people welcome them? Back in the early 2000s? Uh, that's, um, I would say yes and no. <laughs> um, I think there was, in certain circles, a great deal of acceptance, but there was also, after kind of, it kind of mirrored what studies show about, my own studies show about the U.S. South in general, there was this kind of cutoff point where it was sort of like, 
residents of this part of the country were suddenly sort of done or worried or scared. And these um, ideas and tropes that have been around in the United States um, for really centuries of the idea of the immigrant as something, somebody to be afraid of, someone who's going to take our jobs, someone who's different and doesn't want to assimilate. And these national level themes, I guess you would call them, filtered down into the Williamsburg community. And, um, and I found by doing, a, a, along with my colleague Dinesh Sahoni, um, we found in a con- close content analysis of the local paper, really interesting kind of ways in which these themes were being put together to understand, unfortunately, in this kind of negative way, the arrival of this group of people. What did you notice when you looked at how people had responded to them? There was fear. People thought, oh, no, they're criminal and they were mm-hmm. scared of them. There is some fear. The idea, you have to also understand that in the early 2000s, you could talk about them as discourses, ways of talking about something. We're very prevalent at the national level, in particular news media, for example, in particular talk show and media pundits were really engaging this idea of a crisis at the border. And there was a whole reflection institutionally in a, in a whole set of laws that at the local and state level that emerged in the 2000s to contend with this national problem of immigration, right? And now you don't hear those kinds of discourses in the, in the local paper. You don't hear those kinds of discourses in everyday talk as much. These kinds of ways of talking about a whole group as being criminal, not by something that they've done, but just by being here, right? These people don't belong here. They should go back. At the same time, sectors of the local labor market and using and drawing on a labor force that came from Latin America, from at that time, Mexico and um, Central America. One of the major things you've been looking at is how do these people create a sense of belonging when they move from their homeland to this new country? And what makes any of us feel like we belong where we live. What is it that creates that sense of belonging? Well, um, belonging is something that I think my collaborators and I really kind of grabbed hold of as, as a way to talk about not just assimilation or, you know, incorporation in the labor market, all of these ways that immigration studies people talk about, but rather it helps an understanding from sort of a subjective point of view of how do people themselves feel about the place where they are. Do they feel attached to the new place where they find themselves? And how does that change over time? We also talk about how immigrants themselves produce through their own actions and their own lives and their own experience conditions under which they feel that they belong. What we found is part of it is navigating space and navigating institutions like schools and healthcare. Um, maybe mothers could get by without learning English so much, but suddenly it's like, I need to be able to figure out how to talk to my child's teacher. And mothers even learning things like how to drive and pick up their kids and get their kids where they need to go, which you know in a place like Williamsburg is a large part of a parent's life. Can you think of one woman in particular who you could describe some of these experiences as she worked her way around a lot of the barriers to just everyday life for herself and her family? Yeah, I can think of a woman. um, I'll call her Rosario. She um, arrived here before she was a parent from El Salvador and um, fell in love from a man who was from a village not far from hers. Their parents actually knew each other, but they didn't really know each other until they got here. They had children and unfortunately, very tragically, their first son died at a very young age from an unexpected hereditary heart condition that they didn't really even understand that they carried. But they subsequently had um, two other children and Rosario was able to bring her sister who also had two children and they formed a household. So four kids and four parents living in an apartment. And, um, Some of the barriers were just keeping that apartment. And when it was sold, they had to figure out where to go. And that was a really big struggle. How'd they figure that out? What'd they do? 
They moved into another complex, which wasn't great for everybody. And it was kind of far from work, but it was where a lot of um, immigrant folks from El Salvador and Mexico lived. But it wasn't great for the kids. And eventually, through a contact at work, they met somebody who owned a single family home and was looking for renters. Nice. That's so nice, right? They're still there. Yeah. And I remember, you know, things like the older sister of Rosario telling her younger sister, you know, you have to learn to drive. I know it's scary, but you have to figure this out because nobody's going to do it for you and you're the mom. So this kind of notion that like, you know, as mothers, kind of the buck stops with them. How did the women manage their jobs and childcare? And that's another challenge. And so creating and sending for other family members who can then provide childcare is one way to address that issue, I can think of another woman I know who's a more recent arrival from Mexico, and that's been a huge challenge for her. And the solution, which isn't always perfect, is um, pooling resources so that one mother stays at home with the children and everybody pays her a percentage of what they're earning. And then even sharing information about what kinds of jobs are out there that are the kinds of jobs that are flexible. And right now we're back to a time where there's a huge labor demand, right? But one of the difficulties that mothers are finding now is not just the childcare, but it has to be worth it for the childcare. And because of the labor shortage now, restaurants are having a hard time remaining open. So they're closing a certain number of days of the week. And so mothers aren't necessarily getting the hours they need. And then you have mothers with school-aged children, and these mothers worked all through the pandemic, even when the schools were closed. And so um, for English language learner kids, they were the kids who were on Zoom at home, not necessarily with an adult who could sit with them during the classes, right? So there's been a huge learning gaps among those groups of kids and really, really major hardships for parents who are essential workers. So uh, it's through their own ability and capabilities and resilience to overcome hardships that in particular mothers find ways to belong and produce belonging for their children by making this home for their children. Jennifer, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, it's a real pleasure. Jennifer Bickham-Mendez is a sociology professor at William & Mary. She's co-editor of the forthcoming book, Latinx Belonging, Community and Resilience in the United States. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Sergio Chapa and Guadalupe Correa Cabrero were practically strangers when they first drove the U.S.-Mexico border together. Now, after making the trip three times, they're the best of friends. Sergio is an energy reporter for Bloomberg News. Guadalupe is a political science professor at George Mason University. They're writing a book about their travels called Frontera, a journey across the U.S.-Mexico border. They say each trip brimmed with magical moments, from drinking margaritas in the town where they were invented to marveling in the beauty of the diverse geography of the borderlands. Uh, You go from uh, white sand beaches in the Gulf of Mexico to uh, subtropical palm forests, you know, near Brownsville and in the Rio Grande Valley. And then you go out to... um, giant turquoise-colored lake, you know, the Amistad Reservoir between Del Rio and uh, Ciudad Acuna. And then you you travel further west out to the Big Bend region, which is Marvel. And everyone thinks about Big Bend National Park in Texas, but there's actually two national parks on the Mexican side as well, where they're just equally as spectacular. And then, of course, like, you go out into these most amazing highland prairies in, in Chihuahua on the Mexican side. Golden prairies with, with, with you know, amber mountains and blue skies. And uh, that's where they've reintroduced buffalo into Mexico, herds of buffalo. 
And uh, it's just absolutely fascinating. Then you come down from the mountains through forests and then down to the deserts of Agua Prieta and Douglas, Arizona. And then you go into the Sonoran Desert and then the Imperial Desert of California and Mexicali. And then finally, you reach another set of mountains and then you reach the Pacific Ocean, cool, cold waters of the Pacific Ocean and a Mediterranean climate. It's it's absolutely amazing and weird. Each time we travel it, we're just more and more, we see new things and we're, we're more and more humbled each time. Do you find the two of you mostly love the towns and the restaurants and the experiences or the wide open spaces? Everything. I mean, the border, the border is, is, is an amazing place. It's beautiful, but at the same time, it's inhospitable in some regions. And you can see this contrast, the, the open spaces and, and the beauty that Sergio is describing is, is there and you enjoy it. But then at the same time, you understand that you are in a complicated region where you find a border fence, when you find, you know, law enforcement agencies always around. So it's, it's about everything, the open spaces, the food, the beauty of the nature, the beauty of the people, but the people are also complex. There is a lot of dynamics going on, uh, migration, immigration, migrant camps, poverty, inequality, development, underdevelopment. There's everything. It's not just about a space, beauty. It's, it's much more. Did either of you ever feel unsafe during these long travels across the border? Yes, obviously, yes. Um, when when we and I'm sorry to be to be laughing um, because it's not something to, to laugh about, but it was part of our life. So, like, I mean, we, we we didn't feel safe a number of times, and I mean, we usually get along really well. Uh, we're brother and sister. I, I that's that's the way that I that I have felt about Sergio all these years since we, we did this first trip. But but we have had some some events when somebody is fearful and the other one is like, let's continue. Let's continue in this city. Um, like Piedras Negras, remember? Yeah. Or <laughs> or in uh, or in uh, Agua Prieta. Exactly. You were you were you were it's frightened. always one or the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know why. Because uh, Serge is that because Sergio is naive, do you think, and you understood the danger more? <laughs> no, I don't no, think no. so. <laughs> well, it was flip-flop, I think, but other times, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, of course, Sergio is, I mean, you, I mean, <laughs> Sarah, we had never but, met, but but it's true that Sergio is more naive than I am. I'm sure about oh. that. <laughs> yes. No, it's true. It's true. And I was studying that. I mean, he was covering violence, too. But, you know, journalists are different. Journalists, I mean, they go where, where, the, where the danger is. I, I, I do, too, a little bit to some extent, but a little bit less. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I'm more, I mean, I'm more coward, I would say, or less brave than Sergio. But sometimes Sergio was, yeah, was, I was, was afraid. <laughs> well, <laughs> I remember on the... Um, on the first trip in 2013, we, we we didn't drive on the Mexican side at all. We just drove on the American side, and that was that was for a good reason. You know, I had an experience in the border city of Reynosa. Um, when you live along the border, you make friends with people and you date people on the other side of the border. It's very common, and I think one experience I had gone to the movies with friends in Reynosa, and I had driven my truck. And while after leaving the movies, we were going to go get something to eat, go to someone's house, very routine. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of a, of a car chase with the federal police and drug cartel people just zipping through traffic. And then the drug cartel people, they unleash what they call caltrops, which are these uh, little balls of nails that, that form tire spikes to flatten tires. And I'm there driving my truck, weaving, you know, across lanes, trying to, like, avoid hitting one of those tire spikes. And then in the meanwhile, you, you, you can smell the gunfire, you can hear it, and then the, the federal police whiz past you trying to chase those, those suspects. And that's when I, that was like the last time I drove in Mexico. Um, and it, would, it took several years before I would drive in Mexico again. What did the two of you learn to do to be a little safer? What precautions did you take? 
<laughs> That's a good question. I mean, you know. It's called Listen to Guadalupe. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. When she says, let's go, don't argue, just go. <laughs> no, the thing is that, <laughs> well, it's not that. It's not that 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 I know. It's just that I feel, and I like to feel. I I, I trust my instincts, and that is probably why I had not uh, been in trouble for doing the work that I do, which is following the traces or following the path of some very violent drug trade organizations. I do a lot of work with people, uh, qualitative analysis uh, interviews. I have been in the Northern Triangle and along a very complicated route where arms people and drugs are smuggled north or south. And uh, I mean, I trust my instincts. That's the only way that you can deal with your with this while doing work and going to places that you want to 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 go because if you would like to keep yourself completely safe you don't go out i mean you just don't go out you just don't cross the border because it's unsafe and it's it's dangerous was there a different feel in your trip between the trip you took at the end of the trump administration and the trip you took at the beginning of the biden administration Hmm. that's a very good question to be honest um not a lot i mean not not really right not at all hardly you know there was not a lot of change in that regard. I mean, you know, in 2019, uh, 2020, uh, they had this, um, you know, migrant camp, I would say, of uh, people from MPP, uh, say Mexico program waiting on the Mexican side in Matamoros. But in the year 2021, they had people, there was kind of a camp, uh, even like a city, I would say, that started in 20. 20, 2020, Sergio? No, 2021 earlier, I remember. It was kind of like, it was uh, February, early February, when we saw uh, migrants trying to wait to enter, and they were there, still waiting. So this migrant camp that was present um, in the Trump times in Matamoros was, you know, even increased, extended, replicated, uh, but with different reasons and under different circumstances uh, in Tijuana. But you still see people trying to wait, I mean, waiting to to get process, not under MPP, but it's people that thought that because Biden arrived to power, they were going to be processed immediately and they were going to be able to enter the United States, which was not the case. And they were still waiting for months and months and months. Along the way, did you find on the border that people really are living as a as a mix of the two cultures, that that this is a different America where people are Mexican, Latino, and Caucasian American. Yeah, I mean the border is unique in that sense. There is this mix. There is this um, way of communicating. Sergio and I always do that. Sometimes you don't find the, the exact word in English, we are talking, we're speaking English, but then we switch immediately to Spanish or at least use this word in Spanish. You know, some people call this Spanglish and we use it a lot. And people at the border use it a lot, particularly those that go back and forth and have families on both sides. And for me, it was a great discovery and things that that were weird to me, like, for example, a margarita with with a an olive. It was like, ooh, this is horrible. I mean, Tex-Mex food is horrible. <laughs> but then I was like, no, but this is the food here. It's kind of a mix. It's kind of a mix of cultures. And the margaritas were invented here at the border because of prohibition. And they have, I mean, they're not necessarily Mexicans. They are prepared with tequila, which is considered a Mexican product. It is a Mexican product. But they, they have this, I mean, the idea supposedly came from the U.S. It's, it's just it's unique. It's great. You actually went to the place where margaritas were first conceived of, right? <laughs> we sure did. Um, that would be the Kentucky Club in Ciudad Juarez, and it's one of our favorite little watering holes along the border. The way the story goes is that, is that it was the 1920s, prohibition in the United States, lots of Americans crossing the border to get some alcohol, to get some drinks. And one of those places was this was this little bar in, in across from El Paso, and um, a waiter or a bartender there invented this drink to impress a young woman named Margarita, which in Spanish means Daisy. <laughs> and he yeah. made this drink out of lime juice, tequila, I, I believe Cointreau and triple sec, you know, to, to impress her. And and it, uh, we you know we never really know in the story whether or not whether he you know got the girl, but the drink was sure a big hit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and here and we are later. The slurpy kind. <laughs> 
No, it was it was on the rocks. It was on the yeah, rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we don't want we don't like the other margaritas. We just want. Like, we're not we're not frozen margarita <laughs> people. Exactly. We like them on the rocks. <laughs> so margaritas you love as a drink. What foods do you especially look forward to when you're down there? Uh, that is a, that is that is a, that is something for Sergio because Sergio likes to eat and I don't like to eat. I like to drink margaritas. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh. I know two things that you'd like to eat, Lupita, that were invented along the border. Um, uh, one is the nachos in Piedras Negras. Uh, uh, right. a, a lot of people don't know that <laughs> that nachos were invented in the in the Mexican border town of Piedras Negras, which is across the border from Eagle Pass. And the way that story goes, it was World War II. There were some army wives who crossed the border for some drinks in Mexico, and they were at a bar where the kitchen had closed. And they were hungry, and the waiter scrambled. He got some tortilla chips, some cheese, and some sliced jalapenos, melted the cheese on top of the tortilla chips, threw some jalapenos on top, and, you know, thus nachos were born. <laughs> <laughs> but you like to eat, Sergio, so you are the, you are the expert. Uh, yeah, the... yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, when we were in Piedras Negras, we, we, we sampled some of those. Uh, and then another favorite place of ours is... Uh, in Tijuana, a place called Caesar's, where the Caesar salad was invented. Huh, really? Yeah, an Italian immigrant had had moved to Tijuana, of all places, and opened a restaurant and invented the Caesar salad. His name was Caesar. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> There's a very beautiful place you've described where you had an experience that called to mind the passage in the Bible where the rocks would cry out. Tell me about that. Oh, this is an amazing, an amazing, amazing story. Uh, we were in the big band, and this was our first trip to the border. So everything uh, about the border was new to us, and everything was an adventure. Everything was magic. So we went to the big band, and when we were arriving to that zone, we started, you know, seeing all these rocks in mountains with rocks and mountains with rocks. Sorry. So when we started there, we saw these rocks. We were like, wow rocks and Sergio is always making stupid jokes um, and, 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 and he's always saying something I mean uh, and you know he said like oh and he, he mentioned this passage of the Bible about the rocks will cry out Sergio you can continue with the story yeah yeah so it was, it was where uh, where Jesus is, is with the disciples and uh, and he's the Jesus is being greeted by his followers with enthusiasm and cheers and greetings and some people are complaining that they're too loud and then Jesus kind of retorts back to them, like, if they're silent, I tell you the rocks will cry out, you know, kind of praising him and exalting him and, and whatnot. And so just seeing the, the glory and the beauty of the creation there in Big Bend National Park, it was kind of one of those moments where, where I decided, like, if me and Guadalupe, we don't remark how beautiful it is, like, the rocks will cry out <laughs> to proclaim mm-hmm. the glory of creation. After this long day on the road, we ended mm-hmm. up at a at a at a hotel, the High Sierra in in, in Terlingua, and uh, and then tell them what Terlingua is. It's a it's a ghost town. It's a, it's a it's a you know it's a recreation of what that region was, um, and it's kind of like artificial, but built in a in the Big Bend, which is beautiful. So they have like abandoned uh, hotels. I mean, it's just a display of different things that you know remind you of a ghost town. And a lot of people, different types of the year, go to the Big Bend because it's beautiful because of the national park and all that, the scenery and all that. So we. We arrived to the to this um, you know amazing well <laughs> amazing where everything is amazing it's magic there and and so yeah you can tell them about the song and and the person that we met. Oh right 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 so we're there at the uh, at at our hotel in 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 Terlingua and um, you know we're tired we're we're enjoying a meal on the on the rooftop patio and a couple of beers and there's a musician playing. And then he sings a song. The lyrics kind of end with the rocks will cry out. <laughs> and we're just right. like, wow. We're watching like a thunderstorm over the mountain, lightning bolts in the distant mountains, a summer thunderstorm. This guy's singing the rocks will cry out. And we just kind of look at each other like, wow, that's kind of that's kind of amazing. And then we ask the guy like, you know, about about the lyrics. And um, he, he confirms that, you know, he... he 
he, he had thought the same thing we did, and that's why he wrote the song. Yeah. Because of the beauty of the big men and the rocks, uh, and the rocks will cry out. It's magic. I, I mean, this is a magic yes. moment. I mean, Sergio and I always have magic moments at the border. There are things that, that we kind of say and happen next, or that we think at the same time, and we saw reflected in some sign, in some in something, in some event that, that happens to us. And we have already talked about certain images, and we find them again uh, at some point. It's, it's magic. So we call it Momentos Magicos. What do you want Americans to understand about the border region through your book? This is going to be sort of a coffee table-sized book with lots of photographs and a lot of information. Yes, yes. We we had not talked about the book, um, but the book, it's kind of like a condensed, you know, collections of all these memories, of all these magic moments. We wanted to tell people exactly what happens at the border from very different perspectives and also in a way that they can understand everything. Each of the, I mean, what happens in each of the um, border municipalities and uh, each border county on the United States side of the border? What is there that you can eat? Like famous people, uh, you know, hi- highlights of what has happened later, l- lately, or historical events. Um, you know, a number of details that people usually don't know about the border, the whole border, and you know, sharing with them our our photos and trying to say, and this is important, that the border is more than security migration, border security cooperation, a trade, a USM, uh, USMCA or before NAFTA. It, I mean, this is what uh, people in Mexico City, people in Washington, uh, in Washington, D.C. think about the border. I mean, places that are I mean, places for to enforce, to manage, uh, but it's just full of life, culture, food. Um, you know, we wanted to tell all Americans and Mexicans everything, more Americans because it's, in, it's written in English um, at this time. You know, with the war in Ukraine and the flood of millions of refugees and immigrants to other nations, it has really changed the mindset of Americans when it comes to welcoming immigrants into the country. And there's been a lot of discussion about, do we have a double standard on who we embrace and who we hold at arm's length? Have you given some thought to that recently? You know, I I think I'm thinking back and reflecting on the 2019 trip that we took. We saw, you know, hundreds of African immigrants in Ciudad Acuna, Coahuila, across the border from Del Rio. And, um, you know, they were, they were there trying to cross and seek asylum into the United States. And in Juarez on that same trip, we saw the Cubans, you know, who had a presence, established a presence in, in, in Ciudad Juarez trying to cross to El Paso. And then in, in Sonora, you know, we saw the Central Americans. And in Tijuana, it was a, a whole United Nations of people, you know, trying to cross into the, to the border. And, you know, they were put through this this system where only maybe a half dozen or a dozen people a day would would be allowed to to cross and then make their plead their asylum case or ask for asylum they were given numbers uh remember guadalupe they would show us their little numbers and they were like number 700 and something well what number are they on now 37 you're like oh my god and um you're like and then we we, we mm-hmm. saw these camps we saw a camp along the Rio Grande in, in Ciudad Acuna, and it was mosquito infested, you know, and, and hot. Then, of course, you have the, what happened in Del Rio with the Haitians shortly after our 2021 trip. Tens of thousands of Haitian asylum seekers trying to cross into the border, and they were greeted. Um, you know, on the Mexican side, they were given food and water. You know, their human needs were attended to with compassion and on the on the american side they were made to wait in the hot sun they were greeted by law enforcement of course we all remember the images of the uh border patrol agents on horseback with whips trying to to deter them from crossing i remember on being on social media and seeing a meme of that photo where somebody who is anti-immigrant wrote some heroes don't wear capes 
you know, implying that that Border Patrol was a hero for treating that person like that. Yeah, there is race involved. I didn't want to go very, very much into that because this is a very big subject. Uh, but at the same time, race plays a very important role. It's not the same thing uh, that people from Europe come to the U.S. than people that are poor and have the color of my skin uh, coming to the United States. There's kind of like, you know, classism, racism involved in a number of attitudes of certain people in the country. I'm not saying that the society is like that. This is a generalization that should not apply to the, 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 the amazing people that live in the United States of America, great Americans. But at the same time, you know, there is a tradition and some groups are anti-immigrants, are racist and don't want to see people that have a darker color of skin that are considered to be poorer and that the race is not the race that they want people or they consider people to be important or relevant. Guadalupe and Sergio, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for, for allowing Sergio and I to, to talk a little bit about, about our experiences at the board. Yes, thank you. It was, uh, it, was, it was good to remember all these wonderful things we've seen. Sergio Chapa is an energy reporter for Bloomberg News, and Guadalupe Correa Cabrera is a political science professor at George Mason University. Their forthcoming book is called Frontera, A Journey Across the U.S.-Mexico Border. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.